0: Welcome to The Glow Show from GrowLab Organics, hosted by Charlie Lyons.
1: What's up, everyone? Well, week four of The Glow Show with me, Charlie, from Grow Lab Organics. As always, we're going on a weekly journey into the power of cannabis. We are well into this season now. And I hope you're all enjoying the variety of guests and their associated stories. It continues to inspire us at Glow. Um, We spend a lot of time talking to patients and customers in the cannabis space in both Europe and further afield. And what's interesting to me is how sophisticated the cannabis consumer can be. There is such a wealth of information out there now about the plant. And when you marry that with experiences, You've got a really rich set of information to learn from when it comes to products, to strains, to hardware, to brands. You know, the plant is complex. We are continually learning and studying it, but there is such passion out there for it in the community. And in my experiences, there is such an amount of help from um, those engaged people who want to share, learn uh, and teach each other. And this leads us nicely into my guest this week. Uh, It is none other than David Palaszczuk. David has had a colorful career taking in every component of the cannabis industry, as well as uh, a serious amount of time and energy in both skateboarding with the early period of his career working with the Zoo York skate team out of New York. He uh, owned an art gallery for a while in the Lower East Side, um, way before the Lower East Side. Gentrified and as we know it today. And then over the decades after, he's had a multitude of experience in global branding and consumer marketing, working with everyone from American Express to MasterCard, Pepsi, Microsoft, you name it, he's probably been involved in it. He kind of then jacked all that in, um, you know, big salary, huge success in that area, and took a career in cannabis working um, with Dope Magazine and uh, a number of different roles within the space. And more recently, he'll be known to many of you as the author of Branding Bud, which has been an Amazon bestseller in a number of different categories, uh, as well as doing a a great deal of consulting work in the industry still. Uh, He has a number of different podcasts and content outlets himself, and he's a regular contributor to everything from the Cannabis Industry Journal by times dope magazine and many others so without further ado let's get stuck in david it's been a very roundabout route for you getting into the cannabis industry
0: yeah well first off charlie thank you for having me on your show um on the glow show i think it's uh, great i think what you're doing is great and uh bringing the folks in the industry to uh the uk and europe so uh so thank you for that that's awesome boy where to start I mean, it's certainly been a long and, and windy road. Uh, it's been quite a journey, and, and in many ways, I feel like it's just getting started. To be honest with you, but um, you know, I, I, I think when I look back, which is which is a weird way to talk about your life, um, <laughs> since since I have a long way to go. You know, there are certain things that that stand out, and and really, those things are our um, are love for skateboarding. Which which started out um, and, and from skateboarding, it started to turn into lifestyle and lifestyle marketing. Um, and really, is what we know today is the environment we live in with, you know, where we're surrounded by brands and lifestyle marketing and celebrities and influencers. But, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to to grow up in the suburbs of, of New York and I was a lover of skateboarding. And, and so skateboarding around Manhattan at an early age and in my early teens, uh, I came across a group of kids that were skateboarding and tagging things up with graffiti. Um, and that gang really turned out to be, or that crew slash gang turned out to be, you know, it turned into Zoo York, uh, which became a skateboard company then uh, an apparel brand. And over the arc of. Twenty plus years now, it's uh, you know it's a it's a boys brand in JCPenney, so it really went from the streets to to the mass market, and that's what I love about brands, you know, that uh, and culture, and and that's kind of what it's all about. And fortunately, I was growing up in New York at a certain time where uh, y- you know hip hop and breakdancing and skateboarding and uh, y- you know lots of influencers were coming out at that time, whether it be you know the Beastie Boys and Grandmaster Flash and and just all of it sort of happening within a relative short period of time that I ran around the streets and skateboarded around the streets of New York.
1: If I can just sort of slow time down there for that moment, because you've nailed so many cultural reference points for me personally, as, you know, a British boy growing up on the other side of the Atlantic, you know, Beastie Boys, graffiti, you know, that kind of skateboarding counterculture. What, what did that? What feel like? Were you, were you aware you were part of a really significant cultural movement? Or was it just like, I'm having fun, and this is what's going on? Or were you aware of the magnitude of what that time would go on to represent for the rest of sort of humanity, almost?
0: Well, you know, what's interesting, just to digress from that for a moment. When I first started skateboarding in New York, at about the time I was 10, skateboarding was not cool at all and so skateboarding was cool in california so you talk about a boy growing up in the uk i was a boy growing up in new york and everything was happening in california you know with Dogtown and tony alva and jay adams and skateboarder magazine and you know really back in the beginning this was god this was in the early 70s so for me i would literally wait you know, for the postman to come with my skateboarder magazine, you know, at a certain time every month, just so I could thumb through those pages and rip through everything and just digest that magazine in a way that is just, I was drooling over it. So I really appreciate your sort of from a distance looking at what what was going on. What was funny was years later in New York, that's when that all started happening. That's when street skating became you know when skateboarding became more urbanized right Mm -hmm. it wasn't the blonde-haired kid thing anymore Skating on the on when the waves weren't good now all of a sudden it became this new york thing and tied into the culture of hip-hop art and lifestyle graffiti all of that so it wasn't until i was much later older that that started to happen you know, and at that point, I was going to Parsons School of Design. I had owned an art gallery in the Lower East Side. I knew that we were ahead of our time. I knew that people would come into our art gallery and and older people and, and not really get it and say, what is this? You know, is this furniture? Is this art?
1: You had some, I, if I'm right in thinking, you had some pretty significant Young, were there some English furniture designers that you were in? You had in the gallery. Was it a Tom Dixon, or have I got that wrong? I can't remember.
0: Yeah, I've worked with Tom Dixon, Danny Lane as well, who we did a lot of glass, glass furniture. Um, yeah, but essentially we we started off with uh, we started off throwing parties, my partner and I, when we were still in Parsons School of Design, and we were selling all of our friends' art and art furniture and jewelry and and all of that, and and we would go around to the different clubs. Like, uh, God, the pyramid and the palladium and uh, the limelight at the time. And finally, it was in our senior year at Parsons where my best friend and I looked at each other and said, man, we're roommates. We're throwing these parties. We go to school together. Let's just get a storefront and live in the back of it. And let's open up a gallery. <clears throat> and so we did. We, we opened up our, our shop on uh, East 5th Street and the Bowery, just uh, a block north of or two blocks north of CBGB's. It was pretty gnarly the East Village back then. I was actually
1: having this discussion with someone the other day and every time I visited Manhattan specifically, I, I I felt from the start that every corner I almost recognized just from movies or, you know, sitcoms or shows or whatever, but I never felt unsafe. And when I talked to friends of mine who kind of grew up in the Lower East Side or in certain areas of New York, before it was kind of scrubbed up a bit, it was pretty, pretty hairy place, right? Oh, it was. Yeah. I've, this sounds crazy to say one of my best nights,
0: um, during that time was we, uh, we had a gallery opening. We had an after hour party. Uh, we sold our friend's painting to Malcolm Forbes. And then of course, cause we were living in the gallery, we came back. I, it was probably three o'clock in the morning and we're opening up the gates to the gallery. And the next thing, you know, there were two guys on us with guns and, uh, I had just bought a very expensive watch. I was in Europe, and I bought a very expensive watch in Switzerland. And um, the one guy took my my friend's watch, and the other guy said, "Where's your watch?" And I said, "I don't have a watch." And that was because he was reaching up my wrong wrist. And and I'll never forget. My friend said, "Just give him your watch." And then of course he went to the other wrist, Ugh. and I got belted across the face with a gun. Everything worked out. I lost a watch, but uh, I also realized. Uh, I should never buy an ex- I should never buy a piece of jewelry that I can't afford to have a bodyguard next to me to protect yeah.
1: it you buy the nice watch and you wear the fake when you're in those kind of situations right so you've got the the nice one for the for the uh safe environment and if you're going out and it's a bit shady, then you wear the fake that's right that's right yeah.
0: but yeah it was it was definitely a crazy time, but it was a fun
1: time what what is, i know mean, you touched on this a bit in, in the book and we're going to come on some of the some of the kind of brand archetypes in cannabis, but that counterculture is one that you kind of lead with. What is it, do you think, that is about kind of skateboarding and cannabis that they kind of have always been, for me, intrinsically linked together? You know, you could almost smell the skate park before you saw it. What is it about the two kind of worlds that feel like a natural combination? Is it just rebelling against conformity? Or how how do you sort of see that? Because you reference it in that time of your life. And it's kind of come full circle, right? It's always been there against the system.
0: Yeah, it has come full circle. You know what's interesting? I always talk about a scenario. This happened not too long ago, actually, about three years ago or so. I was um, in a park. My son was off playing with his uh, friends. We were sitting in a group, and and I was the only dad there. There, was, there were uh, four other mothers there. And one of the women pulls out a box of mints, and she says... Uh, does anybody want a mommy mint? And I looked at the box, my eyes went wide open because I knew that tin of mints, which looks like a tin of Altoids, is really a brand here in the US called Mr. Moxie's Mints. And I happen to know Tim Moxie, he's a friend. So when I saw Moxie, Mr. Moxie's Mints and one of the mothers call it mommy mints, I just started laughing hysterically and she looked at me panicked, you know, like, oh my God, he knows what they are. So I said, is that what you ladies do all day? You hang out with the kids and, and you microdose on mints in the park, you know, but, but sure enough,
1: there's some truth to that. But they're, they're like a, a micro cannabinoid sort of mint. Is that what they are?
0: Yes. Think of, think of an Altoid mint. Are you familiar with Altoids? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The, the, the little, little metal tins of, of, of breath mints, right?
0: Exactly. So think exactly that, but now you have cannabis infused mints, which are infused with, with a microdose. So they, they don't knock your socks off. But if you wanted to keep a, a steady, low dose of cannabinoids in your system, you know, discreetly, that's a great way to do it. It's the modern parenting way. That's right. So nonetheless, that's a form factor which fits into their lifestyle as, as moms. It's discreet. It's low dose. They can, they, they can do that. Now, coming back to what you just said a moment ago, think about—I don't know—a kid rolling up to the skateboard park and and saying, "Hey guys, I got a couple of mints. Do you want some mints?" Sure, maybe they would take some mints. Or now another form factor like a a sublingual slip or a transdermal patch. Hey guys, I've got some cannabis-infused transdermal patches. Do you want to put one on? The truth is, like you said, you know where the skateboard park is before you even see it. Part of the culture is rebellion, part of everything a skateboarder does, whether it's, you know, skating uh, uh, against the, the grain of the traffic. It's part of growing up. It's part of rebellion. And so there are, of course, brands that reflect that. But what's interesting is it's not only the brands, it's the form factors because some are, you know, some are cannagars some are blunts, some are pre-rolls, some you have to smoke and smell like weed after you consume it. That's part of it like hey fuck you I've got red eyes yes yeah. I did smoke whereas other people just can't do that they might want to consume or they might want to smoke during their lunch period you know but they can't go back to work smelling like weed so there are other form factors now for them to consume discreetly you know uh and to fit into their lifestyle
1: I, I just actually was thinking of something as you were talking about that because a lot of it you know really resonates so I, I totally get it just on the Cali, because I, yeah, you know, I'm a student of skateboarding. You know, we've talked about this many times. Um, but it was, you know, it was the in the in the winter there was the empty pools in in California, and they got skated. Tony Alva and Dogtown and all the rest of it. The, the story is world famous, and books and films have been written and and made. Just coming sort of to current day, we see in Europe, you know, Cali Weed is a way to put prices up you know, a lot of the time it's probably been grown in the uk from whatever seeds or you know or, or maybe not you know but they they use it as a marketing play to obviously increase price or whatever and this is all kind of through illicit channels at the moment really but that that kind of cali weed is carries forth such kudos or credibility but as you said the sort of the early skateboarding was all driven out of California. And then New York kind of, I guess, took over when it hit the streets. Do, do you think that there's going to be a similar thing happening with, obviously, with New York kind of going legal and all the rest of it recently? The brands, maybe the battleground of the cannabis brands maybe in New York, whereas maybe the innovation around cultivation is happening in LA. Like, How do you see that playing out? Because I was just thinking there might be a nice correlation between the legacy of skateboarding from Cali to New York the two coasts and then similarly what's happening with cannabis at the moment you thought about that or got a read on that
0: yeah i do and and i do think i I really do think and, and i should say i do think there will be that riff if you will you know like east coast rap and west coast rap you know east coast skating west coast skating you know they're just really different lifestyles if you will but I think, and I think that's why it sort of plays, plays into it, you know, and, and people buy into lifestyle. But at the same time, I think there are brands that just transcend that, you know, their health and wellness brands, which really don't give a crap about, you know, New York lifestyle or Cali lifestyle or skateboarding. And the funny thing is too, as you get further away from the plant and cannabinoids just become an ingredient in something you know, then often you move away from that. But relative to flower, relative to genetics, yeah, you know, California has definitely always been a cultural leader. There's no doubt about it, whether it was surfing and skateboarding, whether it was cannabis and and, and cannabis culture, no doubt about it. You, You know, the West Coast is definitely, and even further up, you know, more than California, into Oregon, into Washington State, the entire West Coast is really Light years ahead of the East Coast in terms of um, cannabis culture. What saddens me a little bit is, you know, I'm a New Yorker that's lived in Seattle now for 15 years. Let me even stop for a moment. I had worked many years, you know, this is way, this is way, way after my skateboarding years, but I had worked at MasterCard for many years. My boss was in London. His boss was in Brussels. And so I would spend my weekends in Amsterdam. And the funny thing is is that I would always come back to my friends in New York and say you can't believe what they do in Amsterdam. They have counters and menus and all sorts of things and you can actually buy your weed there and nobody believed me. Then I moved out to Seattle, you know, in 2012 when the I502 law passed and I told tell all my New York friends again, you can't believe that you could walk into a dispensary and purchase all this stuff. It's crazy and they still didn't believe me. But finally New York which is finally coming around you know the folks in new york will the non believers will will now really understand what it's like to and and that won't happen till 2023 in new york but you know they they will be able to walk into a store and <clears throat> see all the different form factors you, you know and and better understand how uh, how they can consume cannabinoids but to your question yes i do think there's a rift culturally you know, East and West Coast on many different levels. I think it will work itself out. I think there will always be the folks that just love West Coast. I think there'll always be the folks that love East
1: Coast. And then I think there'll be the folks that just really love cannabis. Um, David, like you, you, you touched on it there with the the sort of reference to MasterCard and um, what happened, you know, after the art gallery, you you kind of embarked on a, uh, a good and the great of working with some of the most incredible brands in, in our kind of history, really, you know, whether it was sort of Pepsi and Starbucks, I believe, and you mentioned Mastercard, and then through Microsoft, do you just want to touch on that period because that's a kind of a step on from where you were before? Then we kind of had a a big pivot uh, into Dope Magazine and and cannabis. So do you want to just cover that off and and explain uh, a little bit about that part of your journey?
0: Yeah. Well, I think I think one of the most interesting things was I had owned the art gallery for eight years uh, with my best friend we were both very creative but we we were really about the commercialization if you will of of um culture and of uh art and so we were we were creating you know working with different artists creating limited or one of a kind pieces of furniture we were written up in all the design magazines i was designing pieces of furniture for gianni versace's stores and then the economy fell apart and all of a sudden this wave we were riding just didn't Exist anymore, and I should also say that because um, your listeners are European and British, the the thing that uh, that's really interesting is design has always been around in Europe. People have always appreciated design. Americans don't understand design, or at least they they now do. The time that we're talking about, you know, let's let's say from the nineteen eighties to now, which I can't even believe is 40 years. But within the last 40 years, that's really when people started to understand design. You know, when I opened the gallery in 1988, people did not yet understand product design, design being in quotes, interior design, walking into spaces and experiencing things like that didn't quite exist yet. You know, so to now sort of look the, you know, the 40 years later, almost everybody that's living and that's consuming right now has just had this experience of like, wow, of course, I'm supposed to wear my Nikes and Adidas. And of course, it tells, uh, you know, all the brands I wear, tell a little bit about me and, and show people how much money I have, where I am in society, who I connect with and who I don't connect with, who, uh, what my associations are, Right. All of that just seems so natural now, but that wasn't really natural back then. You know, local slaps weren't as clear and consistent back then. You know, and when you think about the course of products developing and brands developing, you know, when you think about it in the 60s and 70s, it was really about the benefits. It was like, hey, I could drive this car for less gas to this spot than this car. So it was about miles per gallon. It was about, I could toast my toast perfectly in no time at all. Um, whatever those promises were, but as we started to get into the seventies and eighties, it was no longer about the benefits. It was really about how it made me feel you know, so it wasn't about the Mustang anymore. It was about how the air racing through your hair while you drive your convertible Mustang. That's what the brand was about. And then a little bit further on, you know, it turned into more more about, again, associations and disassociations, like, you know, hey, I'm wearing a Supreme shirt, which means I'm one of the cool kids because mm-hmm. half the people can't get it or can't afford it. And then now it's even more further into what we believe, right? So we buy products because we believe in the promises of the brands. We wear clothes because there's maybe sustainability tied to it or, or a promise that the brand you know, I don't know, let's take Tom's espadrilles, right? You know, buy one pair, another pair goes to somebody that really needs shoes. So brands have really changed over the course of time and how we attach to brands have changed. And it's just so intriguing to sort of see that, you know, quite frankly, that I lived in that space and during that time. And then as the nineties came in and the economy fell apart, I realized that people weren't buying $20,000 chairs anymore. And so I needed to do something else. So I went back to school for my MBA. And when I came out, I was offered a job at American Express. And then from American Express, I, I went to MasterCard. And then from MasterCard, I uh, worked on the Mountain Dew campaign and was a brand manager and really started to understand how I could take my skateboarding background and the understanding of credibility and authenticity and my connections with people in the industry. And now start to leverage that into. You know, sales of a product and mm-hmm. in a way, the commercialization of culture, right? What's weird is I never really quite fit in in the corporate culture, even though I worked at American Express and, you know, MasterCard. And then after working uh, on Mountain Dew, went to Microsoft to be the director of brand partnerships when they released Zune. And Zune was the MP3 player. And again, like that's even intriguing because if you think about an MP3 player, It's really a device that you load up with your song. So the hip hopper, you know, was really creating something very different with his or her MP3 player than someone who's into classical music. And so I was Microsoft to speak to those different groups. And, And again, how do you take a lifestyle like someone who's into classical music or someone who's into hip hop or someone who's into country Western and add all the bells and whistles that make this
1: device more meaningful to them it's amazing as was well. just listening to you talk about some of that stuff just things that are popping into my head you know like you say europe's been very good about <clears throat> the retail experience and i think you know like you say america kind of caught up on that i always think of america's retail culture as it's been fantastic sales culture the service is amazing but wasn't always the experience around it that matched up. But when I think now how that's kind of played out in the cannabis space, the dispensaries have become, you know, these amazing experiences with bud tenders that are super knowledgeable. So you marry that amazing kind of service level that is synonymous with American kind of customer service sales culture into these fantastic future-facing retail spaces. And it's that perfect thing that's going to come full circle. And again, like when you talk about touching on, you know, the hip hop head, you know someone's into metal, someone's into classical music it's the same with cannabis right the plant doesn't really discriminate you've got you know back to the mums on the bench with the with the mints right through to the really heavy stoner right through to the someone who's yeah. taking it as a proper medicine who's treating themselves with a serious condition. It's a really broad church of user base and I think that's what's so exciting about the space right now is the timing is kind of perfect in the way it's coming together with. So many form factors, so much more knowledge around the plant the cannabinoid content, the terpenes, the effects how it's can how it's dosed, the delivery mechanisms, the technology that's coming into the space, but then also you know the people that are using it and it's kind of a it's so diverse in its audience that we have to kind of reflect that in the industry we're building around it because I think we would be missing a huge trick by just importing a lot of the faults of other industries. Uh, where we're not creating a particularly diverse and equitable industry to support the plant, which has got such a diverse user base. So I think a lot of what you're saying is is really interesting how it you kind of almost come full circle with your own experience and what you've done into now where we find ourselves in this sort of frontier industry. Obviously, you guys are further ahead than us and we have some way to go. But I, I do I do think it's just such a fascinating time to be in this. And as you say, we're just getting started. What was it then that you change you then you you kind of had enough of that corporate road and talk to me about the path then into cannabis and and how you then got to the point where you're like I'm going to write a book.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, that's a long journey too. Just in that in in just even in in that. But you know, I was at Microsoft. Quite frankly, I thought I would have killed it at Microsoft, you know, coming from New York, working at all these other companies. Um, And I realized very quickly that East Coasters and West Coasters don't necessarily work the same way and don't communicate the same way. So the West Coast tends to be very passive aggressive. And in New York, or at least the East Coast, but in particular in New York, people basically say what they feel, say what they mean, are very open about their intentions. And so That didn't work very well in the culture at microsoft so even though i survived seven years at microsoft i was definitely uh you know somebody who did not fit in that said uh you know blessing of all blessings in 2012 um the i-502 law was passed which was the law that uh opened up the recreational now i use the term adult use cannabis consumption Uh, for Washington state. At the same time, Colorado came on board as well. Many of my friends were leaving Starbucks, Microsoft, Boeing, Amazon to get into the cannabis industry and start brands. And uh, as much as I wanted to do that, I was just a little concerned about just getting into the cannabis industry. So I started to consult for companies that were getting into the cannabis industry and found, you know, found a a place for myself. You know, what was interesting is I started to consult for many of the dispensaries and the adult use stores that were opening up. And to my surprise, I had a skill set that many other people didn't have. And I didn't quite understand it at the time. So, So the first thing was, I had a design background, I understood design. I studied environmental design, I studied furniture design, so I know how to create a beautiful space. On top of that, having owned the gallery, I knew, and, and throwing parties, I knew how to put things on pedestals and bring people's attention to them and charge lots of money for them, you know, essentially, which is called merchandising. So I had a skill for that. And then I also realized that because I had worked at American Express and MasterCard for God, a total of almost 10 years. I understood what purchasing was about. And purchasing, there's two types of purchasing. There's a transaction. So if you're getting your gas or your coffee, or quite frankly, your weed, and you know what you want, you want to be in and out. You don't want to wait behind a long line of people to get your coffee or your, or your gas. You know exactly what you want. You want to be on your way. So so that's the transactor. There's also a shopper. A shopper tends to want an experience. So think of going in, trying some things on, doing window shopping, spending the day out experiencing things. Well, if you get a newbie going into a dispensary or an adult use store and they look at the wall and they see, oh my God, there's flour, then there's waxes and shatters and butters. There's vape pens. Wait, there's beverages and edibles and will slips and transdermal patches and inhalers. And I could keep on going down the list of all these form factors, you know, lotions and topicals. Mm-hmm.
1: They don't even know where to start. Even if you are knowledgeable, David, you know, like the, I, I liken it sometimes when I go into whole foods and there's like 400 almond milks, I'm like, I don't know which <laughs> is the best one and I don't have time to investigate them all. It's similar with a dispensary. Even if you have knowledge there's so many brands now, you you need guidance, you need help, right? So that's a really important kind of component of the of the retail experience in, in dispensary. Yes. And,
0: and, and if you're in there on your lunch break, you know, for a pre-roll uh, and you have to wait behind, you know, three or four people that need 20 minutes worth of explaining, that experience isn't great for you. So, you know, to my surprise, all of a sudden I was able to talk to the dispensary owners about. Hey, not only their design, but also their customer experience. Maybe you should have two lines, uh, the people that know what they want, the people that need help. Maybe you should have three lines because some people order online before they get to the store again because they know exactly what they want. So I found myself helping dispensary and adult use store owners create the environment and the experience within the store for people purchasing. And then little by little, um, you you know, initially those brands were really farmer-based brands, cultivator-based brands, because that's where they were coming from. Those were the initial people in the industry. Those were the folks that came out of the woodwork, so to speak. And then Dope Magazine, which is based here in Seattle, you know, was was second, I guess, to High Times Magazine in in the U.S. in terms of uh, a cannabis-based magazine, And I had met the owners at a, at a cannabis event and, uh, you know, we started to talk and one thing led to another and they needed, they needed help. You know, they were all guys from the industry, but they were considerably younger than me. And, you know, they looked at me and said, wow, this guy not only understands the culture, but he's a business dude and and he has an MBA and he's worked at these companies and he could help us sort of pull it together. And so what I did was um, I came in as the vice president of brand partnerships and licensing. Essentially, I came into the business, I helped the magazine with their editorial calendar, I helped the magazine up level their writing staff so so we were able to really have quality, you know, articles. I helped again up level the folks that were on the cover. You know, we went from local cannabis heroes if you will uh you, you know to people like whoopi goldberg or bernie sanders or sidella marley from the marley family uh, but you know i was able to get the right people on the magazine uh cover as well
1: and Can so i just ask a quick question on that david because i i, I sure. think that's that's a big you like you say the departure from the local cannabis hero to the more mainstream national global kind of icons you know you mentioned whoopi goldberg bernie sanders just bring that to the current day because we see more and more celebrity either endorsements, partnerships, or people getting into cannabis. You know, I so saw Justin Bieber this week, obviously, in the news with another brand. Do, do you think it's getting saturated that connections, cannabis and celebrity? Or do you think it works or do you think it's hit and miss? Like, how do you see that? Because you obviously were pushing that early on, which makes total sense. Do you, where where do you think we are with that kind of partnership stuff now obviously we don't we don't have that in the in the UK or Europe at the moment but we see a lot of it over in North America
0: so i will say this i am not a fan of celebrity brands you know so having a magazine with a celebrity on having a cannabis magazine with a celebrity on it first off is different than having a celebrity brand that's the first thing but i would also add early on I believe having celebrity brands really helped normalize uh cannabis and and sort of bring it to the fore. And just so I don't forget this, one of the first things I did was art issue for Dope magazine was reached out to my various art connections that I had, you know, but I wanted to do that initially both on a west coast east coast thing, but then even further. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the street artist Insa who is from the
1: UK. Yeah, he's amazing. I actually I won't unfurl it, but I have a piece of his art that's just arrived about a month ago down there.
0: Right on. So I brought Insa over to Seattle. We did, we actually did when dope magazine launched the dope pen, we did a limited edition design with Insa and we actually had him paint a big um, dispensary here in Seattle. And, uh, and he was basically our, our hero at the party. So I, I love his work, um, but
1: yeah, again,
0: this sort of normalizing, if you will, you know, of artistry and and influencers, I think makes sense. But you know, as as you just alluded to, um, so Justin Bieber is the 54th brand, the 54th celebrity cannabis brand uh, that's out right now. I I actually even posted something on LinkedIn, and and you know, I hardly ever do anything like this, but I asked the business partners who partnered with Justin Bieber, you know, what value does Justin Bieber bring to the cannabis industry? At this point, I just think it's a joke. Mm -hmm. But I also read in, in an article, a subsequent article that came out about this, that at least there's a charity component to his brand. And, you know, he's giving back to the last Prisoner Project, which most brands, it seems these days are doing. You know, that, that is the cannabis charity of, of choice uh, these days. But nonetheless, it's just, you know, we're at a certain point where it's like, who cares? Now, I'll, I'll say it this way. I don't care that Justin Bieber has a cannabis brand. I will not buy his brand just because it doesn't mean anything to me. What I would really look toward is who's actually growing the cannabis. And if they're a grain cultivator, then I would say, okay, Justin Bieber's brand is grown by this company and I appreciate it. I dig deeper. I understand what licensing is, and I, you know, but there's a lot of people that don't. And mm-hmm. so in that sense, I've sort of stepped back a little bit and said, you know what? Justin Bieber's brand isn't for me because for a number of reasons. I'm not his demographic and so on and so forth. And I'm I'm just a savvy marketer at this point. But there are a lot of kids out there that love Justin Bieber and that would absolutely buy his cannabis brand. And he has a big fan base. So if it normalizes cannabis, what's so bad about it? And so I was very upset initially, like, Oh my God, another one, you know? And then the next question is cool. If it is another celebrity, what value do they bring? So for example, Jim Belushi, Jim Belushi, knows about the farm. Jim Belushi spends time on the farm. So I don't want to kick all celebrities that are investing or creating cannabis brands. I just think we have to look it yeah. one by one.
1: Do you think um and you reference this or so, you know you have big chapters on this in the book, you know, the cannabis consumer kind of curious is a is a term that we see a lot of um you know over here as well. Do you think the consumers are doing their research? You know, you you kind of referenced it in your answer, a bit, but I want to push you a bit further. Is how sophisticated are the consumers becoming? Are, are they caring more about the what's gone into the cultivation of the product? Uh, what do the founders stand for? Uh, what does the brand mean? Are, are they a value-driven business? Are they on a good mission? You know, you referenced last prisoner project. Are there other things that people care about, or are they just like I just want price cheap, potency high?
0: Uh, the answer is both. You, you know, right. just like any other. Consumer. Some people really care. They care about the plant. They care about what they put into their body. They care about social inequity. They they care about inequality. They care about a lot of things. Others don't. And actually, some people may you know like, hey, I just got paid. I've got a little extra. Or wow, it's it's still Monday. I I don't get paid till Friday. I can't afford it. So it really depends. I think cannabis consumers are really all over the place um, in terms of their needs and their wants and desires. But uh, you know, when I think about cannabis consumers, I, I really think about concentric rings and, and so there's the can of core, you know, the can of core, the folks probably like us, you know, that eat it, sleep it, drink it, talk about it, uh, write about it. Then there's the can of comfortable, which might be those folks that are, you know, the second ring out that hang out with us, but don't consume daily or, or as much, maybe don't know as much, you know, and, and then there's the kind of casual, maybe the weekend warriors that sort of come out, then there's the kind of confused. And those are, they still can't really figure out what the difference is between THC and CBD. And they're not necessarily willing to really reach out further. Finally, there's the two outmost outer rings, which is the canon neutral. They don't really care about it one way or the other. And then finally, canon contra. So I always think about these groups when I'm either writing or messaging or appealing to. I don't know. I think of bit like the canon curious are all different types. But if they're down at the shallow end with just a, a toe in the pool, I have to coax them in. I have to say, come on, the water's not so cold. You know, come on, the pool isn't so deep. You know, we've got life preservers and lifeguards and, you know, come on in. But then there's other folks that are just, they just want to dive right in and you have to say, whoa, hold on a second. You know, it's not as deep over there. So just chill out, you know, mm. um, or go right ahead. You know, like you're the expert, get up on that, you know, triple diving board and show me what you got. So it's just sort of how you talk to them and how you offer up knowledge in in the right way.
1: So Brandon Bud the book you've had uh uh you've been what number one bestseller on on in two categories on amazon is that right david yes which is hard to believe it's no mean feat for sure thank you yeah
0: so the book has gone to um number one in branding and logo design and green business on amazon you know the one thing i i missed charlie and just forgive me here the way i got to the book was after working at dope magazine one of the things i do was i wrote An article every month, a three page article called Branding Butt. And what that was doing was talking about for almost four years the changing landscape or the evolving landscape of brands in the cannabis space. And so, you know, after I left Dope Magazine, I became a chief brand officer at Washington's number one processor and developed some of the best known brands here in Washington State and licensed them out. But what I realized was brands were continuing to develop. And I actually had four years of articles that that really, you know, sort of encapsulated what was happening. And so that was sort of my aha moment to take those articles, roll them up, and then actually go out and do more research around brands, because at that time, more states were opening up. So I was starting to see different states with different preferences and different laws and different regulations and so that was really the aha moment to write the book which is which is the first book on cannabis mm-hmm. branding
1: yeah i mean like i say it's a, a bit of a bible for me you know i always kind of have it around the it, it that's the beauty of it you it's not a start to finish you can dig in and out and just pick chapters that are relevant for whatever you're thinking about uh and I, and i love it for that You know, writing a book. You know, you say you've been obviously contributing to dope. Did you find it like a? a, I guess what I'm interested to know is the industry was changing so quickly around you. Was it quite a difficult experience to write a book in that way, or was it quite lonely? Like, talk to me about that kind of experience.
0: (laughs) Both lonely and difficult. I should say this: I wrote the book twice because the rules and regulations were changing literally right under my feet, and on top of that there were brands that were creating, that were starting, and then going out of business, and then starting and going out of business. Or they were staying in business, but the rules and regulations were changing so fast. So as soon as I would have a photograph of their packaging, you know, ready ready for the book, the law would change, they would change their packaging, and then their packaging was just, you know, it was old, it was stale by the time I, I even had anything. So I learned at a certain point, I really needed to pull the trigger and say, okay, this is where it is up to this point. But I could even tell you that I turned the book into my publisher in January, which meant everything had to be done in December. So just between December of 2019 and when the book launched uh, April of 2020, just in those five months Seth Rogen came out with House There, and I could go down a list, but there were so many more brands that came out, and those 54 celebrity brands, probably about 20 of them, came out more recently.
1: There's so much we can dig into in the book, and I, I kind of almost feel like, you know, I'm sure we're going to do a few of these uh, over our times, but I, I know we've touched on the those different rings of the consumer, which, which obviously really resonate. I'd love it if you could maybe just spend a little bit of time just talking about. Your kind of 14 cannabis brand archetypes. And we don't necessarily have to dig super deep into this because I don't think we'll have time, but just give the audience a flavor of those kind of different types that you've seen, you know, forming obviously more in the North American market. Because what we're always trying to do on this show is give people a bit of a view ahead to what we can sort of probably expect to see coming in both the UK and Europe. You know, we're right at the start, medicinal first. But what we hope to get to adult use. And, you know, obviously, we, I don't call it rec either. We call it adult use for for obvious reasons. But just if you wouldn't mind spending some time just talking about those, David.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, before I jump into that quickly. So when I went to go work for Evergreen Herbal, you know, the largest processor here in Washington state, they make um, candies, they make infused beverages, infused sodas, infused juices, a lot of carbonated products as well chocolates, candies, uh, flower products, pre-rolls. So when I went to work for them, one of the things I started to look at was what brands are currently in the market. And really what I was tasked with when I first got there was, hey, we've got these brands, but we feel like we've created brands that compete with each other. And, And sure enough, they actually did. You know, so I came in, I created this matrix and I said, okay, how do you price your products? Do you have top shelf, middle shelf, bottom shelf? why do you have three different candy bar brands, you know, when when they're all competing with each other, because they're really not differentiated. So after going through that, I started to say, well, how do we create a meaningful brand? You know, like, what what is meaningful to cannabis consumers? And so just briefly, before I get into the 14 cannabis brand archetypes, it it dawned on me, it was pretty clear, we need to look at who the cannabis consumer is and what they desire, what their need states are, what their rituals are, what they can do and can't do because of their lifestyle. Going back to the soccer mom, they can't light up a blunt um, and smoke it at the park with their kids there, but they can take microdose mints. The skateboarders across the way from the the swings at the skateboard park, they can smoke something because it's in their nature to do so, right? So, So we have to figure out, what the consumer's rituals and needs states are, when they consume, how they consume, is it discrete or not? And then the next thing is really based on that, you know, really form factors, you know, so, so cool. If they're rolling joints or blunts, okay, then it's flour. And if they're taking, uh, you know, a beverage or an edible, then it's that. So we need to sort of look into that, you know, discretion, how they use it, when they use it which translates into the form factors. And then finally, once you get beyond the form factor, you're really wrapping it up with all the bells and whistles and that's how it lands on on a store. And so whether it's those 400 brands, you looked at it in Whole Foods or whether it's the 400 brands you walk into a dispensary or an adult use store, now we're starting to talk about like, okay, what's catching my attention? What's different on the shelf here? What appeals to me, and that really starts to talk through to everything from the shape of a product, the packaging, the color, the fonts, all sorts of other things, right? And so when you start to look at that, and which I did and went to California, Oregon, Colorado, Washington State, every legal uh, adult use and medical state I went to and started to look at all the brands and study them. and what I realized was There was 14 cannabis brand archetypes and the archetypes are not mutually exclusive. So they can overlay one over the other. And I'll talk about that in a little bit, but let me run through the the list of 14 cannabis brand archetypes. And then I'll just take a couple and talk through them. So if you think about it, there's a cultivator brand, there's a gender brand, there's a foodie brand, there's a health and wellness brand. There's a counterculture brand. There's a prohibition brand, a nostalgic brand charity brand, a luxury brand, a value brand, an art and design brand, a regional brand, a novelty brand, and a celebrity brand. And so let me take an example. There's um, Whoopi Goldberg has a product, a cannabis-infused product or line of products called Whoopi and Maya. It's designed for women. So let's start off. <clears throat> Whoopi Goldberg, celebrity. It's designed for women. So it's a gender-based brand their products focus on PMS and, and, uh, other specifically women's ailments and to help them along with that, then there's a charity component to it as well. And so, you know, that's the way that they overlap, but basically you can pretty much break down any of the brands that I've seen, maybe one other brand, which is really interesting. There's a brand called Swami Select uh Nikki and Swami are the cultivators. And even though I would probably put them under a cultivator brand, they're the only brand that has a spiritual component to them. So now I'm thinking maybe there's a spiritual brand archetype.
1: Talk to me about that. That's interesting. How, how is it spiritual?
0: Well, it's spiritual because um one, it's grown by by a swami, a certified mm. swami, on land that has been certified by other religious sects both okay. priests rabbis and others and they actually have spiritual retreats on their property um, wow. they tie the, the plant back into their brand and and into their lifestyle so it becomes their brand so it's interesting you, you know i never really thought about that i still think they're probably more of a cultivator brand uh, yeah. because they're close to the earth and and i also want to say i'm not stuck on 14 brands i would I would love for somebody else to create another brand, just like Swami and Nikki, where I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. I didn't think about that.
1: And I guess that's the ex- really exciting bit of where we are in the cannabis industry at the moment, right? Is It's forming in front of our eyes and we could go back at any point in time and you wouldn't have had some of the brands that we know and love these days. Like there was no Tesla, there was no Beats headphones, there was no this, if you go back in time and there's always new things coming through uh, disrupting innovating you know whether it's the spotify's or any of the tech platforms from the last 20 years so it is it is super exciting for where we are and while we have 14 now and i think david you know thank you to you for actually going out there and trying to put some categorization around this but i absolutely believe there will be additions to that in in the coming time david if i can i, I want to blast a couple of quick fire questions at you just before we wrap the show this week i mean again we could we could keep talking for ages just give me a, who, who do you think are the people you're really looking up to at the moment from a cannabis point of view, trailblazers in the, in the branding side of things? Uh, what companies are doing some really interesting stuff?
0: Well, there's one brand in California I think is really interesting for two reasons. They're called Can. They're a cannabis-infused beverage. And the thing that really strikes me about them is, so as I was developing brands, uh, cannabis beverage brands in multiple states, Really the thing, the thing all about it was what's the cap on THC? And how do we create a beverage that knocks people's socks off, right? Gets them high. And not only that, so that was that was the trend or has been the trend in many states. But then there's this new trend where it's like, okay, if you could put a hundred megs in a soda bottle, could we put a hundred megs into a shot bottle or like a five-hour energy type bottle? Mm-hmm. But now all of a sudden. Drinking hundred mags in a soda bottle over the course of however long it would take to drink a soda bottle, now has sort of moved into this trend of wow, I could just do a shot with hundred mags in it. And for those that don't know what a hundred megs is, that could probably put the majority of people asleep for the weekend um, if they're not if they're not regular consumers. So with that, that was sort of what was trending in Oregon, in Washington, and along comes can with a six-pack in California that's microdosed. So their strategy is completely different than what was taking place in other states. Their strategy is, wait a second, we're gonna sell a six-pack. It's going to be micro-dosed, like five milligrams per can. And so it's really about a session. It's about showing up at somebody's house, sharing it, maybe being social. You know, it's about other alcohol beverage replacement, whereas mm-hmm. the other states... It wasn't. It was like, give me that shot of of a hundred megs so I could get, you know, it's fucked disgusting. up,
1: right? That's really interesting because you know you wouldn't turn up at a house party with, well, some people might, but you know, it's it's I guess it's the equivalent of like drinking half a liter of vodka in one go uh, versus six, you know, vodka sodas or whatever it is you you, you drink is and steadily increasing your uh sort of so social lubrication over the course of the party, right? You're either coming in as a social hand grenade where you're like, oh my God, this guy's completely baked, or or girl. And uh or or kind of, you know, easing into it. And and as we know with the trends around alcohol, less young people are drinking and more people are looking at cannabis or other other forms, psychedelics as well, in terms of getting their their buzz, right? That yeah. is really, really interesting because it's actually Like you say, looking at the form factor, but then placing it into a social situation, right? Because rather than the 100 meg mega shot, it's spread out so you can slowly uh, increase your uh, inebriation in a managed way, I guess, or not, if you don't want to.
0: And not only that, but you could share it with people. Like you're not going to swig half a shot and then, you know, and then Mm. give it to your friend and say, here, finish it off. So what was really interesting is, one that they really were going against the trends; that they were microdosing instead of dosing. And so now think again, going back to to the moms in that park. Wow, wouldn't that be interesting? Now they could all share a can and still have the five five mags of THC that they were having in mint. Still doesn't smell. Um, they could carry a can around them. You know, they're not you know getting inebriated with it. Or at a party, you could come in and share. And then so. One is really the macrodose versus microdose. Two is the fact that it's not flour; that it's a different form factor; that it's a beverage. And then three, what I find intriguing about what they've done is their brand is called Can C A N N, obviously a tie back to cannabis. But their product, a the beverage, comes in a can, which is brilliant. And then they have a marketing campaign where it's really an anti-alcohol campaign. So uh, one of their taglines is. Hangover, cancelled, but cancelled is now spelled e- yeah. right. So they're doing some really interesting things, not only in dosing, but on form factor and mm. in marketing.
1: I mean, we, again, we, we, we don't have it here, obviously, but we, we, I'm, I'm seeing the energy that they're creating around what they're doing and how it's being received. It's pretty amazing.
0: Side note, they also are now selling their product uninfused so they can sell it nationally and globally. And get their flavor profiles out get their brand mm. out um so when they finally come into the market with into their other markets they'll have a brand that's recognizable yeah so that's doing cool. it really well, right. I,
1: yeah i just i just love the fact that they've really thought about like you say form factor product but really put it into that what's the use case because yep. you know my background is in in, in digital product and service design was all about why, 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 why are you creating this? The amount of times people will come to me, brands and go, I want to build an app. I'm like, why? They're like, well, our competitor has one. I'm like, but why do you want one? What are you doing with it? Uh, apart from spending a lot of money and I'm happy to liberate you of your money, but unless you can give me a good reason why we should put this time and energy into something which you're then going to have to market and spend a shitload of money on, I don't think it's a good idea. So unless you can have that, what's the use case? Why do the And the users will always tell you, right? So you just need to talk to customers patients or whatever it is and you'll find the answers there. Then it's about how creative you can be to interpret the unmet needs or the opportunity space and turn that into a meaningful product that people want. That's really neat. I I I love I love that share. That's cool. And again, I obviously we're aware of it. It's nice to hear it from from you on the on the ground over there. We just touch on that for me a minute because obviously we're in a medicinal market over here and We hope to be adult use at some point in the not too distant. We have a very sophisticated adult use market, which is illegal in Europe, as you know well. Do you even see a sort of medicinal stroke adult use divide in the States anymore? Or is it just kind of all, it's it's so adult use focused that if people want to use uh, cannabis for medicinal purposes, they'll just go to the dispensary and pick up what they need and use that to treat everything from chronic pain through anxiety through sleep?
0: Well, I mean, look, there there are some people that just purchase cannabis and use it and don't care about the politics of it. That's for sure. But I I would actually recommend this to your listeners and and to you, Charlie, if, if you haven't seen this, there was a great documentary called Evergreen. And what I thought, and it's on Netflix, what I thought it was about was the legalization of cannabis in Washington state. And when I saw it, I realized it was about the fight between the patients and folks that were pro-medicinal or medical and the folks that were pro-commercial or adult use. And, and there was a real big fight between both of those sides. You know, the, the truth is, and, and I'll make this short, but, you know, when everybody made the argument here in the U.S. and said, just tax it, if we tax it, it will be wonderful. Why would it be wonderful? Because if we tax it, every, the general public makes out because now there's additional taxes. If it's taxed and it's regulated, people will be safer. Um, And I could go down the list on on all these reasons why it totally made sense. But you know, the truth is that tax is 30%. So now, if you take people, underprivileged people, they can't afford cannabis now because there's this 30% tax on it. Number two is they're not going into the adult use store because. They don't either have a license or ID, and if they did, they're not showing it to the man, that's for sure. So so there really is, in this whole system of adult use and the legalization, there really is this bifurcation, And, and I think we need to be really mindful of that. The legalization of cannabis has also fostered an even deeper gray and black market because there just aren't people that are either used to or want to go to a cannabis dispensary or adult use store to purchase their cannabis. They have their means of getting it. It's priced at a certain amount and they're not going to pay more. So it's just interesting. So there's two sides to this argument. I think both sides are really laid out well in in Evergreen, which was the documentary. And and I recommend that.
1: Cool. Uh, Final question, David, which is always my finisher. um, I'm giving you my crystal ball. Uh, I want you to go a couple of years into the future and give me a couple of predictions for this great industry.
0: Okay, here's my prediction. I often hear people arguing now about the future of cannabis. And they talk about, often they'll talk about, and, and these are my words, but but often they talk about industry or ingredient and what will cannabis be. So as I'm working on my next book, it basically finishes with industry or ingredient. And the answer is both. And, and so as we build, the industry builds, there will be companies that produce cannabis and cannabis products. And the closer to they, the closer they are to the flower, meaning they're cultivators, they sell the flower or they extract the flower, they create waxes and shatters and and um other things, dabble products, but are still very close to the flower. I believe that's what the industry will be. As you start to move further out and you get into isolates and distillates and water-soluble powders and things that become ingredients, you will start to see beverage companies, edible companies, etc., et using those ingredients or powders in their products. So the product will become still, it's still regulated, but it will become You you know, less uh, a flower-based product and and less about the industry per se. And then I think over time, we're also going to get the further out you move, you will actually have companies like Colgate Palmolive that will use cannabinoids, let's say, in their toothpaste or their mouthwash. It's not psychotropic; it doesn't get you high, but it might relieve your gums or or Mm -hmm. you know something some other ailment that we have. So I really think there will be an industry. There will be, it will be used as an ingredient in the companies that we know and and we love, or we know and we hate for that matter. And, you know, cannabinoids are on their way and and they'll be used in many different things, both to get us stoned and not to get us stoned. We still have lots of research to to do. And, um, but that's what I think. I I think it will be, generally speaking, an ingredient, um, just like many other things.
1: It's a great place to leave it. David um it just remains for me to say thank you so much for giving up your time as always it's always a pleasure to talk to you I always feel that uh, I learned something new I think your perspectives are really fantastic so thank you for that we will talk again soon I'm sure
0: right on thank you Charlie it's as you know it's always a great great time chatting with you I, I hope I'm able to spread some knowledge and um, and educate uh, those that are listening that's that's really what I'm about I'm I'm here to advocate for the plant.
1: Well, definitely did that. Thanks, David. Thanks, Charlie. So I just wanted to extend a huge thanks to David. And I wish I could go back to that time in the 80s on the Lower East Side and bottle up some of that raw creative energy from New York and bring it back to today. Uh, What a ride David's been on. And I really look forward to his next moves, be they books, brands, or bud. Next up, I'll be joined by tech pioneer and industry veteran, Jeff Ragovin. Jeff, for those of you that have followed his own podcast and some of his own content, is a complete ball of energy, super knowledgeable, really sharp. He's got a great handle on the role that data is playing in cannabis. And I'm really looking forward to what should be another fantastic conversation. And I can't wait. Till then, as always, stay safe, stay well, and I will speak to you next week. The Glow Show We believe in the power
0: of cannabis